to inspire small business owners. Business Wars is showcasing successful companies that started out small. Here are their inspirational and motivational stories presented by Dell. And if you need tech advice, Dell Technologies Advisors can help you find the right solutions for your business. It's early September 1972, and in Atari's office in Santa Clara, California, Al Alcorn's getting deja vu. Alcorn's a solidly built 24-year-old engineer with an unruly beard. He's on the phone with the owner of Andy Capp's Tavern in nearby Sunnyvale. Hey, Al. Pong's broken. Again. Can you get over here and fix it right away? Pong is Atari's first product. It's a coin-operated video game, an abstract take on table tennis, where players use two thin white lines to bat a square ball back and forth. And in 1972, that's really something. This is the age of pinball machines and mechanical arcade games. Home computers are a pipe dream. And the idea of controlling images on a TV screen? <laughs> that's the stuff of science fiction. Still, Atari's trying to make sci-fi reality. Trouble is, Pong's prototype has been nothing but trouble since it was installed at Andy Capps to see if it can peel customers away from the pinball tables. Alcorn sighs. All right, I'll be there within the hour. Forty minutes later, Alcorn strolls into Andy Capps' tavern. It's a rustic drinking hole with wine casket seats. Alcorn waves hello to the owner and heads for the games room at the back. Inside, it's mostly pinball machines. The glaring exception is a wood grain cube on a table with a 13-inch TV inside. The front of the box is painted tangerine, and under the screen are two small steel dials for controlling the game. Alcorn puts his toolbox down and digs into his pocket for the key to the game's coin box. If he's going to diagnose what's wrong with Pong, he needs some quarters to give himself free plays. He opens the coin box and immediately hundreds of quarters flood out. They surge over the edge of the tabletop like a silver waterfall, clattering onto the floor and looping crazily around his feet. They finally rattle to a halt under some nearby bar stools. What the heck? Alcorn can't believe it. He just emptied Pong's coin box last week. In just a few days, People have fed the game so many quarters that its coin box was filled to the brim. But this unexpected loot drop isn't the breakthrough, it seems. Atari's already signed away the rights to Pong. And that means it'll have to get its game on if it wants to win. Small businesses are grappling with the impact of these uncertain times and looking for resources. That's why Dell Technologies assembled an all-star lineup of podcasters to create the first-ever virtual conference to share advice and inspiration for small businesses. Dell Technologies is here. From keeping you connected while working remotely with Windows 10 and Microsoft Teams to providing relevant content for businesses. Just search Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on Radio.com, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. (music) 
You know, here on Business Wars, we cover a lot of big companies that come at each other like gladiators. But sometimes, just being smaller and nimbler can give you the edge. So, in honor of small businesses, we've teamed up with Dell Technologies. We're bringing you two special episodes that tell the inspiring and motivational stories of successful companies that, you guessed it, started out small. To kick off, we're showcasing two small businesses with novel products but not a lot of cash that still overcame the odds to become industry leaders. Their names? Atari and Red Bull. It's late June 1972, and in a rented office in Santa Clara, Northern California, Atari's just opened for business. It's a tiny startup, just four people and a shoestring budget. But founders Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney are thinking big. They met in 68 while working as engineers for a video technology company. But then Bushnell sold Dabney on his dream, bringing the games that exist on giant mainframe computers into amusement arcades. But they soon realized computers were way too expensive to use in arcade machines. So they devised a way to use everyday electronics to create and move images around a TV screen. Now, they want to use that tech to revolutionize play. Atari's already off to a good start. It's landed a deal to make a video game for Bally, the biggest pinball company of all. But before Atari can make that game, Bushnell needs to get his new engineer, Al Alcorn, up to speed on video game technology. Bushnell takes Alcorn into his office. Al, I've got a warm-up project for you. It'll help you understand our technology, as it is pretty complex. What I want is a table tennis game. Two bats at opposite sides of the screen, one for each player. The players will try to hit a bouncing ball by using dials that move their bats up and down on the screen. Got it? Alcorn looks at his shaggy-haired boss. That's it? Yeah, but this is more than a training exercise. General Electric hired us to make it. Thing is, there is no deal with General Electric. Bushnell just wants to motivate Alcorn. And the lie works. Alcorn throws himself into the task, learning how Atari's video game tech works. It's primitive stuff. There are no microprocessors, no computer code. No, to make a video game in 1972, you grab a soldering iron and connect cables, transistors, and other electronic components to circuit boards. Still, Alcorn picks it up fast, and he adds sound and a virtual scoreboard. He even engineers the game so that the ball bounces away at different angles depending on which part of the bat it strikes, making it more fun for players. Once he finishes the game, he invites Bushnell and Dabney to try it out. Dabney strokes his horseshoe-shaped mustache and eyes Bushnell through his specs. All right, Nolan, let's play. The Atari co-founders spring into action, moving the virtual bats up and down the screen to catch the fast-moving ball. Soon, the two founders are at it like teenagers, determined to emerge victorious. As they tie the score, Bushnell pushes his shoulder against Dabney to upset his game. Hey! When the two finally stop playing, Dabney turns to Alcorn. (laughs) Al, that was so much fun! Nolan, we gotta show this to Bally! But Bushnell's not sure. It's too simple. People will get bored fast. A driving game, that's what the market needs. 
Dabney stares at Bushnell in disbelief. What are you talking about? This game is great. Let's at least show it to Bally. If they like it, our contract's done. If they don't, we haven't lost anything. Okay, okay, we built two machines. One for Bally and another to test so we can see how much money it makes in a week. I'm sure Andy Caps would put it in their game room. Now we need a name, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. How about naming it after that sound it makes? Pong. It's two weeks later, and at Andy Cap's tavern in Sunnyvale, two drinking buddies are at the bar. And one of them's noticed the new arrival in the game room. He calls the bartender over. Hey, Bill, what's that new machine out back? It's a TV game, Jerry. A TV game? Yeah. Yeah, it's a game you play on a TV. Huh. How about that? Come on, Steve, let's check it out. Steve and Jerry approach the strange, cube-shaped machine. They stare at it for a few moments like it's some kind of alien. Jerry watches the ball silently bouncing around the screen as Steve reads out the written instructions. One, insert quarter. Jerry looks alarmed. A quarter? Sheesh, pinball's a dime. Then I'll pay you, tightwad. Where was I? Two, the ball will serve automatically. Three, avoid missing ball for high score. Huh, sounds easy enough. Steve drops a quarter in the slot, and the game begins. Two hours later, they're still there, whooping, hollering, and feeding quarter after quarter into the game. And word spreads fast. Soon, Andy Cap's regulars are forming lines at the bar's front door before opening to get their Pong fix. Pong's creators are excited about the demand for the game, but now Atari faces a particularly thorny dilemma. It's September 1972, four weeks since Pong appeared at Andy Cap's. It's clear Atari's got a hit on its hands, but there's a problem. Atari's under contract with Bally, and Bally expects Atari to deliver a driving game. In Atari's Santa Clara offices, Bushnell and Dabney debate what to do. Nolan, you need to go see Bally in Chicago and get them to take Pong, or at least get them to reject it so we can offer it to other manufacturers. Come on, show them the figures. That'll convince them. Bushnell stares at the figures in front of him. Pong's earning more than $200 a week on one machine. The average pinball machine makes just 50. I can't show them these numbers. They'd never believe them. Then cut it in half. Bushnell shakes his head. That's still too high. Let's make it a third. $66. They might believe that. A few days later, Bushnell is in Bally's Chicago headquarters. He flashes a smile at Bally CEO Iggy Wolverton and tests the water. So what's your feeling on Pong? Wolverton offers a half smile and looks down. It's interesting, Nolan, but we're not excited by it. Also, it's a two-player game. You can't play it solo, and that means fewer orders. Bushnell sees his opening. Well, actually, we've tested it. And it's averaging $66 a week. <laughs> Nolan, seriously, you don't expect me to buy that, do you? There's no way Pong earns that much. 
So you don't want it? I, I, I didn't say that. Ideally, I'd like to see other options before deciding. Bushnell forces a smile. This is the worst possible outcome. Bally won't take Pong, but it won't reject it either. Atari's game is a gold mine, but now it's trapped in legal limbo. Bushnell returns to Atari's office on the verge of despair. He sits, head in hands. Dabney slumps into his chair. What are we going to do, Ted? If we try pushing Bally into rejecting it, they'll know it's special even though they don't believe in it. Dabney gets a gleam in his eye. I've got an idea. Take this down. Dabney dictates a letter to Bally, offering to develop a new game for them if they formally reject Pong. A week later, Bally accepts the offer. Now, it's game on. Pong is finally all theirs. But Bushnell and Dabney's search for another manufacturer quickly proves a dead end. No one wants Pong. Bushnell paces Atari's office, fuming over the arcade industry's disinterest. Why don't they get it, Ted? Why can't they see that TV games are going to make their pinballs and electromechanical games obsolete? Dabney tries to calm Bushnell. Nolan, how about this? Why don't we figure out how much it'll cost to make Pong ourselves? Bushnell stops dead and looks at Dabney incredulously. Atari's business model is to create video games for manufacturers like Bally. Building and selling games is not part of the Atari plan. Ted, we can't afford that. Come on, humor me. What's the cost? The pair sit down and crunch the numbers. They price everything from the TV and the cabinet to every transistor and screw. Bushnell stares at the final total. $300 for a single Pong machine. Yeah, like I said, we can't afford that. Hang on, Nolan, hang on. The way I see it, we've got a choice right here. We start manufacturing or we go home. And I don't want to go home. But it's going to cost. Stop. Let's just make the decision and figure it out from there. Do you want to go into production or go home? Bushnell smiles. No, I don't want to go home either. Two weeks later, Atari's office has been transformed into a factory floor. The company spent all its money buying the materials to make 11 Pong machines. Even then, it's had to negotiate discounts and beg suppliers for credit. At one end of the office, Alcorn hunches over his desk, soldering circuit boards. On the floor, Dabney is on his knees rewiring TVs. He stops for a moment to stretch and notices Bushnell leaning against the wall, watching. Nolan, what are you doing? Bushnell jumps. Nothing. Exactly. We're here building all these machines. You've got to go sell them. Bushnell scuttles into his office and shuts the door. An hour and a half later, he reemerges, looking shell-shocked. Dabney puts down his screwdriver. Nolan, what's wrong? I just made three calls and sold 300 machines. From that moment on, Atari takes off like a rocket. 
the company uses the money from the first 11 Pong machines to make 50 more. Now, Atari's growing so fast, it's run out of workspace. Desks are surrounded by boxes of TVs. The parking lot is filled with wooden Pong cabinets. Every spare surface is covered in components, wires, and circuit boards. But then, one morning, Dabney arrives to find Atari's secretary has got some hot gossip. Ted, you won't believe this. The company next door moved out in the middle of the night. Guess they were overdue on the rent. Dabney raises his eyebrows and smiles to himself. I'll be back. Twenty minutes later, Dabney returns with a saber saw in his hand. He switches it on and thrusts it into the thin wall separating Atari from the abandoned office next door. Drywall dust goes flying. Ten minutes later, the wall's gone, and Atari's floor space has doubled. That afternoon, the landlord storms into Atari's office. You can't do that! Bushnell shrugs. Well, I'm afraid we already did. Just send us an invoice for what we owe. By then, word of Pong has spread through arcades nationwide. Orders are pouring in from across the country. Soon, Atari will be getting orders from overseas, too. Atari's leveled up from newbie startup to the founder and leader of a new industry, video games. And it'll stay at the top of the high score table, almost unopposed, for the next decade. Atari went from zero to hero within a year. But sometimes, success comes after lots of setbacks and plenty of time. Just ask Red Bull. Hey, I'm David Brown, host of Business Wars. And together with other top podcasters, I'm one of the hosts of the Dell Technologies Small Business Podference, a virtual conference via podcasts that shares advice and inspiration for small businesses during these uncertain times. Tune in now at DellTechnologiesPodference.com and check out tips and inspiration to help your business. And if you need tech advice, Dell Technologies Advisors will be happy to assist you in finding the right solutions for your business. It's 1988, and the normally sleepy Austrian town of Lienz is buzzing. The medieval town center is packed with people. They're eager to see the men hunkered at the starting line begin a grueling race. The countdown begins. The runners surge forward. They're tackling one of the toughest relay races ever devised. It's called the Red Bull Dolomitenman, and it will test their endurance to the max. The athletes power up a steep mountain, rising almost 6,000 feet during a seven and a half mile run. At the summit, each runner smacks the hand of his team's paraglider. The paragliders leap into the air and sail past craggy peaks on Red Bull parachutes down to the valley, thousands of feet below. Next, it's kayakers. They strap themselves into their kayaks and plunge off a pier into the whitewater rapids below. But it's not over yet. 
After battling the fast-flowing waters, the exhausted kayakers hand off to the mountain bikers. The bikers spring into action and pedal furiously over 17 miles of rocky terrain to the finish line. That evening, the footage is broadcast nationwide. Austrians are riveted to their television sets, cheering on the daredevil action all the while, consciously or not, soaking up the Red Bull brand. For most viewers, this is the first time they've seen the Red Bull logo. This grueling race might make Red Bull seem like a big deal, but the truth is, it's struggling. The company's been trying to jumpstart the energy drink business, only to keep stalling. This high-octane event is about to set the brand on the path to global success, but the battle to get here began years before. It's early 1985, and in a renovated barn near Frankfurt Airport, Dietrich Matterschicks is visiting an old school pal. This 40-year-old Austrian used to be a toothpaste marketing director. But during a business visit to Bangkok three years earlier, a taxi driver noticed that Matterschicks looked jet-lagged. He suggested his passenger try a pick-me-up, a Thai energy drink called Krating Dang. Matterschicks tried the sickly sweet tonic and felt a jolt of energy. Now he plans to bring a carbonated version of this liquid jet fuel to the West as Red Bull. But there's a problem. No one in the West knows what an energy drink is. That's why Matterschicks has come to Frankfurt. His friend, Johannes Kastner, owns an ad agency, and Matterschicks needs a killer brand. Kastner invites Matterschicks into his airy, wood-floored office. Good to see you, Dietrich. I hear you're no longer selling toothpaste. What are you doing now? I'm starting a business, selling a drink called Red Bull. A drink? What, like Coca-Cola? No, 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 it's a new kind of drink. An energy drink. I brought you a sample. Matterschix reaches into his satchel and pulls out a bottle of amber liquid. Go on, try it. Kastner takes a swig and grimaces. Ack! What is this stuff? Uh, caffeine, sugar, B vitamins, taurine, and a carbohydrate called glucuronolactone. Hmm... Dietrich, Dietrich, how much are you investing in this? My entire life savings. Even so, money's tight. <laughs> All your savings? You're crazy. No offense, but the drink is unpleasant. Tastes irrelevant. It's what the drink does that matters. It perks you up, revitalizes you. It'll sell. But I need a logo and slogan to convey that message. Look... I, I can't pay you, but can you help? It's a doozy of a request. Matterschicks wants Castor to brand a drink that tastes bad and that people don't know they need or want, and for free. But Castor is Matterschicks' friend, and he's risking everything on Red Bull. How can Castor say no? Well, with that drink, you'll need all the help you can get. So fine, I'll help. But I still think you're crazy. Kastner figures he'll knock out the project before the year's over. But even though Kastner is working for free, Matterschicks rejects all of his ideas. 
1985 turns into 1986, and still Red Bull lacks a logo and a slogan. And by then, branding's not the only problem. West Germany's health authorities are refusing to approve the drink for sale. The problem's the taurine. It might be an amino acid that occurs naturally in the body, but German officials can't wrap their heads around why someone would put it in a drink. So Matterschicks decides to launch Red Bull in his native Austria instead. By the time Austria's bureaucrats give Red Bull the okay, it's early 1987, and the branding challenge still isn't resolved. Kastner's created a logo Matterschicks likes, two red muscular bulls charging at each other against a yellow sun, but he has yet to create a slogan good enough to satisfy Matterschicks. And now... Kastner's had enough of this pro bono project. He tells Matterschicks he's out. Desperate, Matterschicks begs his friend for just one last idea. It's early 1987. Matterschicks wakes with a start in his Salzburg home. He glances at his clock. It's 3 a.m. He stumbles out of bed and answers the phone. Hello? Dietrich, it's Johannes. I have your slogan. Red Bull gives you wings. Matterschicks digests the words. Gives you wings. Yes. Yes, that fits. Kastner can't believe his ears. That fits? That fits. That's all you have to say after three years? Johannes, I knew you'd deliver, so I'm not surprised. It's March 1987, and in Vienna, Austria, Matterschicks is at a market research agency preparing for Red Bull's imminent launch. At long last, everything's in place. He's got his Charging Bull logo, a dynamite slogan, and approval from the health authorities. He's created stylish slimline blue and silver cans that will stand out in stores. He's also devised what he believes is a masterpiece of a marketing plan. He's going to turn Red Bull's unfamiliar ingredients into a selling point, presenting Red Bull as something mysterious, dangerous even, and to drive home its specialness. He's going to charge a premium price, too. Now, there's one final job to do before putting it in stores. Matterschick stands in a plain room, looking through a one-way glass. In the adjoining room, a bunch of bemused Austrians are taking part in a Red Bull taste test. And things are not going well. A large man with a curly mustache nervously takes a sip of Red Bull. He immediately pushes the can away in disgust. Ugh! This is vile! Isn't it supposed to taste good? The researcher moves to the next question. Okay, now you know about the drink. Let me tell you about the price. Fifteen shilling. That's about a dollar twenty cents. And that's a lot. In 1987, a can of soda cost just 50 cents. A middle-aged woman in red-framed glasses responds, Is that a joke? That price is ridiculous. I wouldn't drink this again if you paid me. After the focus group disbands, the researcher gives Matterschicks a brutal debrief. I've never encountered such an unpopular product before. My advice is to quit now before you waste any more time and money. But Matterschicks isn't deterred. No. Those people don't know what they want. 
We'll teach them. Just watch. I will create a market for Red Bull. The following month, Red Bull cans arrive in convenience stores across Austria, and they stay there. Matterschick's resorts to giving away cans at parties to encourage people to try it. Slowly, it catches on. Austria's party crowd embraces Red Bull so they can keep going through the night. By late 1987, the company has sold several hundred thousand cans, but it's still a cult drink. If Red Bull is to conquer the world, Matterschicks needs something that'll really capture people's imaginations. And that's when he dreams up the Red Bull Dolomit Tenman race. That punishing endurance test is the launchpad for Red Bull's new promotional strategy. It links extreme sports to the brand's values, vitality, speed, and pushing the limits. There's no overt selling of the drink, no athlete swigging Red Bull for the cameras. The aim is to entertain while imprinting the Red Bull brand into viewers' minds. Its logo is a constant lurking presence. It's there on the runner's vests, stamped into paragliders and on the inflatable arch marking the finish line. Matterschick quickly attaches Red Bull to more and more boundary-pushing sports. He sponsors Formula One race drivers, mountain bikers, windsurfers, and cliff divers. Each one reinforces Red Bull's action-packed image and fuels sales. By 1992, Austrians are buying millions of cans of Red Bull every year. The lean years are over. Come 1997, Red Bull's selling hundreds of millions of cans a year in Europe. When the drink hits North America soon after, it repeats that success, becoming a symbol of club cool, a go-getter's go-to juice, and fuel for daredevils. An intoxicating success story that started out small. That focus continues on our next episode, as a Kurdish entrepreneur dips into the yogurt business and gets the jump on Danon and Yoplait and an entrepreneur named William Wrigley Jr. takes on an industry that smacks of monopoly. From Wondery, this is Business Wars, and we sure hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you'd give us a five-star rating. Tell your friends how to subscribe, too. And go over to Wondery.com survey if you have a moment. You can answer a short survey there, and that'll help support us, too. Don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about some of the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but the dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.